Hello, Hello yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums-to-be and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Jade. Hello, Sophie and everybody listening. How are you? I'm actually, I don't know the last time I jumped on in an intro and said anything (gasps) positive, but I'm feeling quite good the last few days. Yay. Yeah. Touch wood. What's been happening? So I had been dealing with for a few weeks with really bad reflux that was actually causing my vomiting more so than your typical nausea leading to vomiting. Mm. And I was a bit like, oh, my God, one fucking thing ends and then the next thing begins. And I've started on a medication actually called Nexium for my reflux. And touch wood, the past three or four days since taking it, I haven't had any of that evening vomiting, which is what was happening. And I just feel a bit better. So we're coming with positive news. And then in other positive news, I hope this continues to be positive news. The other day I broke out in a rash on my tummy. Now, anyone who's been listening for a while will know that when I was pregnant with Poppy, our first, I developed this thing called PUPS towards the end of the pregnancy, which is this like debilitating rash that the only cure or management for it is to have your baby. Mm. And it sent me so just into such a dark place because of the itch. Like I can't, anyone who's had PUPS (laughs) knows the itch. And if you haven't, it's like the most a pestering itch you could ever possibly imagine to the point that I begged my obstetrician for an induction. Like that's how badly I needed this itch to leave. Anyway, so this rash starts the other day. Like I showed it to Nick. Nick looked at it. He was like, get on the phone to your obstetrician. Like what? We cannot deal with that from 30 weeks because obviously I'm a long way off being able to have an induction. Anyway, luckily with pups, it kind of just gets worse and worse and worse, like kind of just keep that trajectory just keeps going. Whereas this started like fluctuating up and down a bit throughout the day and it's really gone down now. And I do think it was just some kind of hives (gasps) situation, but it's gone now. Touch wood. Was it itchy? itchy? It was so itchy. But it didn't necessarily look like pups, but just like the second I get an itch, like my mind does not go to a good place. Was it like so, growth? Maybe like your skin was stretching. But I guess if it's a rash, well, that's, that's what different. That's what they hypothesize causes pups is that it's, oh. and it, that, that's why it's most common in your first pregnancy or, or if you're having multiples and often it is most common in your stretch marks. I didn't have stretch marks with Poppy, but I did carry quite big with her but they hypothesize that it is the stretch like it's they think that maybe the fetuses or the baby's skin cells get into your skin cells and like the stretch causes like some kind of reaction anyway oh my god it's just a lot touch wood (laughs) 
I'm touching that is not wood. what it was. Touching the wall. It was just a little bit like maybe I just used a different like body cream or I do find that when I'm pregnant, my skin, I do not normally have sensitive skin. And I do find that when I am pregnant, my skin is much more sensitive. So touch wood, it was that because you don't all want to hear me when I have puffs. Could you imagine <laughs> you, if you started You think I've been woe is me thus far. You just, you just wait. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm glad that you're feeling better and it's gone for now. Hopefully it doesn't come back. No, yeah, no, that's what we're hoping for. But um, how are you? I'm good. I'm really good. I had a really great weekend. It was very family-filled, which was wonderful. I had my mum and dad have actually moved closer to us, so they're about an hour away up the coast, which is nice. So they're up there getting settled and there was a festival on and it was just full of kids um, my nephew Wholesome and niece. times. Yeah, it was really good. So that was great. And then Yumi said to me this morning, it was so cute. She Well, it's kind of cute and it's kind of not cute, but she was sitting on top of me and she's like, Mum, are all your sores better? And I'm like, what sores? And she just pointed to my vagina and was like, those sores, meaning my period. Oh. She called them a sore. And I was like, yeah, darling, but they'll be back in about three and a half weeks. <laughs> we can talk about it again. Those Sorry. sores seem to come about fucking frequently. <laughs> oh, I was so over it. But, yeah, no, it was all good. I have a Rudolph Fabulous that came in, though. Absolutely. Okay, so I'm 16 weeks pregnant with my first baby and I got a message from my auntie the other day saying, I'm so glad you're not one of those impatient people and waiting till you (laughs) give birth to find out the sex. First of all, I'm definitely not that patient and find out tomorrow, but clearly my mum hadn't passed this info on to her. So I went back and said, nope, not me. Ha ha, we are finding out on Wednesday. She came back and said, no, you have to keep it a surprise. It's exciting. So I said, well, I'm not going to be any less excited to meet my baby because I know the sex. And also, if you want a surprise, have another baby of your own. (laughs) (laughs) Or I'd turn around and say, okay, if you want the surprise so badly, we'll tell everyone except for you. And then you. you let us know how good the surprise is. Do you know what? The older generation is weird with the gender sex finding out situation. I think because it wasn't as readily available to find out when they were pregnant. I remember people used to act like I'd done something brave with my other two because I wasn't finding out till birth. And I was like, this doesn't need to be like celebrated. (laughs) I don't need a medal because I haven't found out. That's just what we've decided to do. Like if you find out what you're having, it doesn't make you a weaker or less human. And it's so funny because when we found out we were having a third girl, I had people commenting on Instagram all the time being like, Mm. oh my God, bet you're hoping for a boy. I'm like, well, we already, already told you, you girl. <laughs> so bad luck. <laughs> like, and then, and then from that, all the things start unfolding. I guess the plus to not finding out is that people 
are not coming at you or having these like conversations about, oh, they got three girls or oh, they got three that they're like, oh, I wonder what it's going to be. So for them, they're excited. But like once you give birth, this girl is absolutely right. You do not care what the gender is. Sorry, I will say, obviously some people do have gender disappointment and I did, but I found out that is one of the reasons I wanted to find out. But you know what? You know what you said? That's one of the reasons we did find out this time. It was because I couldn't be bothered with the comments of, oh, Nick must be hoping to get his little boy this time and (sighs) da-da-da-da-da. And so I was just like, you know what? Number one, it was so the girls could know if they're having a little sister or a little brother. But the more important thing or the thing that affected me more was I was like, I can't be bothered actually having these conversations about like, oh, you're going to, you know, you're going to be so disappointed if you have another girl. I was like, let's just find out and then we can just put an end to the Nip it in the bud. But I've got a Rudolph Fabulous too. Well, two in one day, two in one episode. Don't act like we don't take care of you guys. Okay, so this listener wrote in. I've been too embarrassed to share this with anyone. After having my third child in four years, I went and saw a women's health physio and gyno for pelvic floor, prolapse, pessary, etc. I had to take my newborn and two-year-old girls with me to some of the appointments. She sat there in complete silence and in awe of what was going on around her. I explained to her afterwards that my vagina was broken and needed the doctors to help me fix it. A few days later, her daycare teachers told me about how they were playing doctors and nurses and she proceeded to lie down on her back with her legs up in the air and replay exactly what happened in the appointment. The daycare teachers must have thought it was fabulous because other than having a few giggles, they took advantage of the situation and encouraged it while talking about private parts and consent. Oh, my God. Less. That is so classic. Actually, good it's, it's absolutely fabulous. There's nothing rude about it. But the other day I came outside and Yumi was trying to change my nephew's nappy. So they're the same age. There's like six months difference and he's out there naked spread eagle <laughs> and she's telling him, no, no, just lift your bum up and try and, and he's bigger than her. She's trying to slip a nappy underneath and I'm like, oh, there's one for the 21st um, books. We'll just have to blur it maybe, but, yeah, it was a classic. <laughs> Now, before we launch into today's episode, we have one insy-wincy favour to ask our beautiful listeners, if you like listening, if you don't, I'm not quite sure why you're listening, but if you do like listening, head to our show notes. We're going to leave a link to vote for us in the Listener's Choice Awards for the Australian Podcast Awards. It literally takes like 20 seconds. We would just be stoked if you voted for us, if you enjoy listening. And If you don't, then good on you. But also it's going to be really, really good for you guys. If you do that, we might even, I don't know, we might give you guys a surprise. I don't know what it is, but you just, you've got to vote. You've got to vote. Just We've got to work out the surprise. This week's episode, Mama Matters. Yeah, we spoke to the beautiful Fiona from Mama Matters. She talks all about how sleep training is not the only way to get sleep in your household, how it's basically an entire chat about 
doing what feels right for you and your family and not necessarily following what you feel everyone else is doing. I loved this chat. We talked about safer co-sleeping. We talked about, you know, going against this narrative of creating a rod for your own back and creating bad habits. And I found it super refreshing going into my third time having a child just kind of reminded me that, you know, I am the expert on my babies and to listen to myself and do what works for our family. Yeah, absolutely. And if you are stressed and you have been stressing about sleep and what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing, then this episode is absolutely for you. So we hope you enjoy. Hello, Fiona. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. For those who haven't heard of you or don't follow you on social media, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yes. Hello. Thank you for having me. I was very, very excited to have this opportunity to chat to you guys and your listeners. So I'm very grateful to be here. So I am Fiona. I am the founder of Mama Matters. I provide online early parenting and sleep support. And I would say I am all about uh, normalizing the messiness of childhood sleep. So I'm all about empowering parents to throw out the rule books, to find out what works for them, own it, normalize it, validate it, let everyone else know that, you know, sleep doesn't look perfect for them too. And just to try to shift some of this mainstream sleep narrative where it has to look a certain way and be done a certain way, because it's putting so much pressure and expectations on parents, particularly mothers, let's be honest, to get it right. And I am a social worker by trade, so I have seen the other side of it where I have had so many clients come to me feeling as though that they have anxiety, depression. Well, they do. And a lot of it comes down to these unrealistic expectations of sleep and being a perfect parent. And when you actually start to get into the nitty gritty of how they ended up where they are, it's like once you take the pressure off, it doesn't need to look this way. You're not Mm. failing. You are not doing anything wrong. This is where you need to be. It really, it it takes the pressure off them. They can breathe a sigh of relief, relax their shoulders and lean into actually enjoying motherhood again. Yeah, I guess we've been somewhat guilty of this because a lot of the time when we speak about sleep on the podcast, we're both two people who have sleep trained their kids previously. So I guess we want to like, you know, we don't want to be hypocritical from the outset. And a lot of the time when we speak to professionals about sleep, it is kind of that mainstream sleep training mentality. But I feel like I maybe did that because I didn't think there was another option if I wanted our household to sleep. Yeah. And I do feel like I am someone who around that six-month mark needed a bit more sleep. As my parenting journey has gone on, I have, I guess, surrendered a bit more and more to that and realised that even if you do sleep training, you may end up like me with all four of us in the one bed anyway. (laughs) But, hey, we're sleeping, so it's okay. So, so like, what are our other options, though? Well, I love that you say that because, for one, I don't care if people sleep train. Like I'm not here to, you know, convert people or say that they shouldn't do that. I am, you know, I'm a social worker. I know that all families are so beautifully unique and complicated and people do things for all sorts of different reasons. I do think it's so important though, to know that there are options that you don't have to do that because that's where I was seeing so many women get unstuck where they 
we're doing something that just feels so inherently wrong for them. They're not having a good time. It's awful for them. They're feeling out of sync with their babies and they think, but I have to do it because otherwise they'll never sleep. So there's lots of messaging in the mainstream industry that tells you you are doing a disservice to your baby if you don't do this. And that's what I want to shake up a little bit. So again, coming from a completely non-judgmental place, and I truly embody that. Like it's, I am never judging anybody. I'm judging the entire paradigm that needs a little bit of a shake up. But, you know, there's so much room in between cried out and waited out, you know, so mm. cried out would be the end of, you know, just closing the door and walking away and coming back in the morning. Hopefully not too many people do that these days. And then waited out is just sucking it up, even if you're miserable. So there's so much room in between where you can honor the needs of the infant whilst honoring the needs of the parent, getting creative, working out what family values are, what's going to work for that family, what supports they have, what we can do to support, you know, maternal sleep at the same time as having a wakeful baby, looking at underlying reasons why a child might be particularly wakeful. There's so much to do in that space in between, which is where, where I work, I guess. And once again, it's coming back to nurturing the mother and understanding what she wants and how she feels about doing things. When I had kids, I feel like I was reading books and it's like, okay, around this time, like the four month sleep regression or the six month mark, I probably should try sleep train because other, if I don't do that, then they're never going to sleep. And now I have a three and a half year old who sleeps next to me almost every night. And I threw the book out the window because I was like, you know, what I'd actually rather sleep for a whole night through and have her next to me than me do anything else right now and and I just sort of went I'm happy with that Hmm. but when you start off as a mum you get really sensitive and you don't want to do the wrong thing until we have beautiful podcasts and information like yourself and us um, that are giving mothers a option of what do you want to do? How do you want your baby to sleep? Mm -hmm. So how can we switch our mindset so that we aren't so obsessed with the sleeping through the night narrative? Start by stopping asking other people if their babies are Mm. sleeping through the night because it's such, I I feel like I need to apologize to anyone who had a baby before me for anything I said or asked or put pressure on them about like, it's classic, isn't it? Is he a good baby? Is he sleeping through the night? I was going to say, it's actually not even that direct. It's, are they a good baby? And what is meant from that is, are they sleeping through the night? Which number one, are they a good baby is a ridiculous question because everyone's baby is good sometime and an asshole at other times. (laughs) And it's just this weird thing that, yeah, good baby equals baby that sleeps, bad baby equals baby that doesn't sleep. Yes. And a good baby equals a baby who is relatively convenient, doesn't get in the way too much, you know, smiles on demand and doesn't (laughs) talk too much. Sounds like a 1950s good wife. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Equals a good mother, right? Because they're doing a good job. You know, your baby's so happy because you must be just doing such a good job. Mm. But that could send us off on another tangent. So um, understanding as well that we don't sleep through the night as adults. We wake up throughout the night. Sophie, I'm sure you wake up a lot during the night at the moment. (laughs) How many times do you wake up at the moment? Oh, well, there's just periods where I don't think I sleep at all. But yeah, do you not? Three, four, 
times. I just feel like I, I'm so, I'm in such a lighter sleep at mm. the moment. And if a child wakes me up, I feel like before I could just lay back down and I'd be straight asleep. At, but I feel like since becoming pregnant, I have to do the whole wind down, like mm. maybe put a sleep story on, oh, lay cute. there and breathe and have nice thoughts. Whereas before I'd just be like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe you're not sleep deprived enough at the moment. Uh, <laughs> but my functioning during the day would say otherwise. Yeah, right. I hear you. Yeah, so knowing that we don't sleep through the night, we wake up, we have partial arousals and full arousals all through the night. So partial would be we hardly remember them. We might just turn over, get more comfortable, you know, arrange our covers and things. And then we might have full arousals where we wake up, go to the toilet, get a drink of water, put a sleep story on. (laughs) Um, So it's the same for our, our babies and our children. So understanding what is biologically normal is so powerful. And that's not to say if somebody's complaining about how tired they are or how frequent their baby wakes for us to say it's normal and then everything is rosy because that doesn't dismiss how hard it is sometimes. But knowing what is normal does really, really help because then that takes you away from feeling guilt and shame about doing all the wrong things. What are, I mean, I guess it'd be age dependent and that kind of thing, but are there any kind of red flags that maybe make us think, okay, I feel like I've been putting up with this, but maybe it's not normal for babies. I just did a blog post on this last week. So if you, if any of this does we'll speak to you, have a look. Yeah. yeah. But snoring and persistent open mouth breathing is often a flag of some sort of sleep disordered breathing, maybe some underlying allergies and uh, food sensitivities, things like that. If they sleep in really funny positions at the same time, like bum up in the air, they often have their neck extended and they're like, like that. They're sort of opening their airways to breathe. The other thing is if they are really, really wakeful and really, really restless, if they take a really long time to wind down for sleep and even in their sleep, they're kicking their legs all the time, they like restless leg syndrome, that can be a sign of vitamin and mineral deficiencies like iron or zinc or magnesium. Or if you feel like your baby sleeps or your kid sleeps a lot, you know, like they're three and they're having a three hour nap and then going to bed two hours later and sleeping for 12 hours. That's often a sign that their sleep quality is pretty poor and often. Shame because it does sound like the dream. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I Did you really go get that checked out? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let them suffer. But often if, if we come across a, a kid like that, then you'll also hear that they're snoring and mouth breathing and maybe they've got sweats and they're sleepwalking and sleep talking or grinding their teeth. There's lots of indicators that something is going on there. It's usually tonsils and adenoids or something like mm. that. Sleep apnea. My daughter had sleep apnea. She was disgusting Ooh. to watch sleep. And she's since had the tonsils and adenoids fixed her right up. But yeah, there are some red flags to look out for. Just like like babies who just don't settle. Like really, if if all is going well, you definitely have your more sensitive babies as well. But if they are alongside you and they still don't sleep, if they don't want to lie on their back or on their side, they have to be on you, but you have to be upright. That's a sign (laughs) that, you know, you're going to have nights like that regardless. But if they really can't be comfortable lying down on their backs, then that's usually a sign that there's something else to explore as well. How can we have conversations with other people around us about unrealistic expectations? So if people are, you know, saying to us, oh, I really feel like so-and-so should be sleeping through the night or, oh gosh, you know, how are you dealing with that? But it's not coming from like an empathetic, Mm. are you okay side of things. How can we have these conversations? I think that just 
normalizing the shit show. You know, we have in our head that babies should be sleeping through by about six months. I I know I did anyway. I felt like, you know, if I laid the good sleep foundations and healthy habits, then I would be rewarded for my responsive, beautiful caregiving and my baby would sleep through on their own by six months. And then I could say, see, I didn't have to do anything. It didn't happen. Even my six-year-old still toddles into our bed most nights at some stage. He just likes sleeping with us. That feels right for him. But just normalizing the messiness, like every night doesn't look the same for most families. There are some Mm. kids who are much more predictable by nature and they might sleep through through the night earlier. But I think it's, it's kind of tricky because you also don't want to step in there before they're ready to receive it. Like if they are really solid in their approach to parenting and sleep, And they're just simply telling you that they wish that their child slept through the night. I wouldn't be, you know, trying to put too much onto them because I think that's their journey to take. But just having those conversations, like bringing back the kind of the the elders in the village in our modern day way to just say, this is what happened for us. And once I stopped worrying about that, it wasn't a thing anymore. It doesn't have to be such a thing. Because I was having thoughts the other day and I feel like with Poppy, I put a real emphasis when I did sleep training on sleeping through the night. With Goldie, I was less concerned with her sleeping through the night, but I was at a stage where I just needed more sleep. And at that stage, I couldn't, I don't know, I've never been someone who's felt comfortable sleeping with babies, but I don't mind sleeping with children. And I'm kind of like thinking about, oh, how am I going to approach this third baby? Because part of me is like, well, is there any point of sleep training them if, you know, my other two have now ended up in my bed anyway? But I also know that I get to a point where I'm like, I really need more sleep now. Yeah. Like, what do you do? Well, you can, you can play that by ear, right? Because you don't have to plan that far in advance. And that's the trap that we get into where we feel like we have to do something now because what if later? And that's where a lot of that messaging from the sleep industry comes at you from is set this up now, otherwise this, this, this. So we think that we have to do something in case it doesn't work later, but you can do what works today, now, and then tomorrow if it stops working, then you can change things up. That's so So true. So I think in, in your situation, it would just be about getting creative who goes where and seeing what sticks when when the new baby comes. Yeah, well, comes. Nick and I have moved to the spare room yeah, and the girls the are in the master bedroom. <laughs> and I'm like, whatever, we're sleeping, yeah. who cares? They can have the ensuite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I loved when we had, so we had Knox and then three years later we had Zali and Knox was in his own bed. And then he, a couple of weeks out from having Zali, he suddenly didn't want to sleep in his bed. He was scared and we're like, okay, come into bed because, you know, you you got a bit going on. I think you're a bit anxious. And so he came into the family bed. And then when we had Zali, she, I had a cot for her, but she didn't sleep in it. But our family mattress is really too soft. So then I went into Knox's room. I slept in his bed with her. He slept in there with dad. And then when she got a little bit bigger, we brought her mattress, which was his bed, (laughs) in alongside the family bed. So we had the family king-size mattress on the floor alongside the kid single mattress where I would lie with Zali and then come up and down as I wanted to. And that lasted for ages. People who have tiny homes really are onto something because (laughs) you do not need a lot of room. No, you don't need a lot of walls. No, you definitely don't. Yeah. Is cuddling newborns to sleep okay? I remember always knowing that if you put them on your chair, 
chest to go to sleep because it was the only spot that they would fall asleep on was not okay by hospitals and doctors. And we ended up doing that every single time. We'd come home, our newborn, I'd feed and I'd either put her on my husband, middle of his chest, and we'd sit upright or mine. And that was it for a few weeks. We just did it like that because that's what worked. But is that okay? Yes, it is. And as long as we are doing it safely, like as you're saying, we prop ourselves up so that they are more upright. Otherwise, they shouldn't be lying on their stomachs on our chest flat. But yes, and that is where they want to be. And it's it's a shame that we have to ask that question, isn't it? Is it okay if we cuddle our newborns to sleep? Because that's where they were. They were inside us. They want to cuddle. But I found it so interesting because I feel like before I had kids and even when I did have Poppy as a newborn, I remember thinking, no, like co-sleeping is so, you know, I worked as a doctor before I had kids. I was like, co-sleeping is so dangerous. And I I think it might have been a post that you did or a post that birth with Beth did that I found so interesting is that because it's perceived as dangerous, no one talks about it, but it's something like 70 to 80% of parents, even if they don't intend to co-sleep, end up Mm co-sleeping at some point. And that's because that's really where the baby is often, not all babies, but a lot of babies are happiest. So we're not learning about safe ways to do it because we've been told it's dangerous and to avoid it. So then we're ashamed when we do it because we're not doing the best thing by our baby. But then nearly all of us are inevitably doing it and and doing it even less safely than we could be doing it in the first place. Yeah. Yes, exactly. All of that. So the fear mongering around the bed sharing stuff means that people are falling asleep with their babies sitting up on a recliner or on the couch or sitting up in bed and just falling asleep because they know that they cannot take their baby to bed with them. Where actually, if you take your baby to bed with you intentionally and safely, that is so much safer than falling asleep on a recliner, which is really Mm. dangerous. And then when the stats come out about, you know, Mm. tragedies, this co-sleeping umbrella covers sofas and recliners and things. It's not accurate. Tragedy happens with a baby in a cot. It's a tragedy. Tragedy happens with a baby who is in bed with mum and it's ban or bed sharing. Yeah. You know what I mean? So we are doing such a disservice by not teaching people how to do it safely and not opening up that conversation. You don't have to do it. It doesn't work for everyone. And lots of people cannot relax having their baby in bed with them. That's fine. And it's not safe for everyone either. There are the like rules that you need to follow. But I do think everybody should have access to that information on how to do it safely. So in the middle of the night, when you're desperate, that you know how to do it. And so what are some some rules or the things to think about if we are Because really, a lot of us are at some point going to end up with a baby in bed with us. Yeah, I'll try to remember off the top of my head, but you can always look up the Safe Sleep 7, which is by the La Leche League, but sober and not smoking. So both parents, if there's two parents in the bed, both sober and not smoking and not be a smoker. That's not just don't smoke in bed. Also, the mattress needs to be firm enough. There are ways to check how firm your mattress is. I should get back to you with that one. sex or no, no, that's not the way to not test? Not ideal, not ideal. Put a wine glass full of red wine and jump on the other side. Yeah, there you go. No? Yeah, yeah, there you perfect. go. There's one. Good, yeah. good. Asterix may not be the actual way to check, <laughs> so check properly. And do not drink it because you're not allowed to drink there yeah, you if go. you're going to have a baby in the you're bed. You're learning. Yeah, so sober, no smoking, firm mattress, tie your hair up, no loose clothing. Mother should be breastfeeding, which I hate saying because obviously bottle-fed babies and mothers are 
epic as well, but the research isn't there. So the research that they have had, Professor James McKenna from Notre Dame University has lots of amazing research on mums and babies sleeping together. But what they found with babies who have never been breastfed, they would instinctively be placed sort of up face to face which poses them at more of a risk for suffocation. So what they want to be down near the breast, which if you have been a breastfeeding mother, that you will intuitively put them down there. And then you'll often put your little arm around there like that. And that is called the cuddle curl. So they'll be safe in here and protected in that little nook. So not in between the parents? Yeah, on mum's side, mattress on the floor. Watch out for entrapment like if there's gaps between the mattress and the wall for example you might use a a pool noodle or rolled up towel to fill up any of those gaps make sure that you and your partner are on the same page and you both know that the baby is in bed that's really Ah, important have that conversation before if there's pets they can't be in the room no big kids sleeping with a baby yeah Going back to dad, though, do they have the instinct that we do that if they rolled over in a deep sleep, they would realise there's a baby there or are they absolutely out and don't really go, oh, hang on. It's so different, hey. Like, I, I always say take all of these rules and then use your own maternal wisdom to work out how that applies to your family. So my husband, for example, he is such a light sleeper. Every time I roll over, he's awake. And it's really <laughs> annoying. <laughs> I can never get space. But I know that he would be so onto it and he would always, you know, probably wake up before me with the babies in the bed. But many dads, partners are really deep sleepers or maybe they're on medication that makes them really deep sleeping, which is another risk that you can't have the baby in bed with them. But See, for me, I would automatically, even if my husband would actually stop from turning, my hand would go out if I heard him move, yeah. which then makes me think, am I actually having a good night's sleep myself? Because I'm obviously subconsciously no, you're thinking. you're not. Yeah, I know. So whether that baby is in a bed next to me or she's on me, I guess it doesn't matter. I'm just always going to be lightly sleeping. You, but you I was quite surprised when I saw, and, and I get why the recommendation is to not have the baby between you and have them on the mother's side and the outside of the bed because I was like, oh, surely that's more dangerous because the baby can roll out of bed. Mm. But I guess it's more the risk of the baby getting trapped between you in the middle. Yeah. And they probably won't roll out of bed because you'll have your little cuddle curl. Yeah. But they'll just be in there and you'll be switched on. But going back to sleeping lightly when you have your baby in bed, you do. And the research shows that bed sharing breastfed mothers, no, mothers aren't breastfed, but you know, (laughs) bed sharing and breastfeeding babies, the mothers are usually woken more frequently throughout the night, but they report feeling more rested in the morning. So that's where we need to take our focus off how many times do we wake up in the night? Like take out the clock, take out your phone, stop tracking wakes. How rested do you feel in the morning and go with whatever that situation is? Because we had quite a lot of people write in saying, is it possible to night wean or for your baby to end up sleeping through the night when they are co-sleeping? Yeah, it is possible. They usually will stir a bit more when they are alongside you. But again, you as a family will probably feel more rested. You can night wean whilst co-sleeping. It's what I do with a lot of my clients. Some babies, it's just a bit hard and they the family prefers to get them used to a separate sleeping space while still breastfeeding and then nightween. So it's not, you know, too much at once, but yeah, you can absolutely have your boundaries around breastfeeding in the night 
whilst still having them alongside you. Some babies or toddlers work might take it easier than others. And can you give us some examples of those boundaries? Because I feel like one of my fears of co-sleeping is that I'll just end up being this open milk buffet and I'm someone who I get touched out easily. Mm. So even though I sleep with my kids, you know, they're nearly five and nearly three now, neither of them are breastfeeding and that, and I don't really like hug them while we sleep or anything. But my main fear around co-sleeping would be, oh my God, am I going to be touched and sucked on all night? (laughs) Yeah. I remember that feeling so well, like, (laughs) oh, just take it out, take it away. So you can have some boundaries. The, The thing I would say about that is when it feels really, really hard, it's often not the time to make changes, which is hard because they're obviously going through something and need that extra comfort and stuck togetherness for some reason. But you can just get creative with starting in the day, starting to introduce some of those boundaries around feeds, using certain words and soothing them in other ways, like add in other sleep associations. So if feeding to sleep is such a huge strong, powerful sleep association. So it's often the only one we have if we are feeding to sleep. So just whilst we're feeding to sleep, maybe we'll pat their bum, sing a song, um, Mm. introduce like a back rub or something like that. So that when we do come to soothe them in another way, it's not just taking away the one thing they know, it's falling back on some other things that they are also familiar with, but practicing in the day before you spring it on them in the night. Cause it's often what we'll do. We'll be like, all right, not going to feed them tonight when they wake up. <laughs> and then in the dark of the night, they go for the boob and they're like, what, what is this? This is not how we yeah. do it. When did the rules change? And then everyone's just beside themselves Man. and it's a shit show. And then you're like, I can't possibly ever get out of this, but you can, it just needs a little bit more planning and creativity. Do you have any tips for dealing with sleep deprivation? Cause I mean, you know, we're trying to change the mindset that it shouldn't be all about everyone sleeping through the night, which means that people are inevitably going to be a bit tired, if not very tired. Mm -hmm. How can we deal with that tiredness? Again, it's being a little bit creative, like finding a sleep situation that works so that the whole family is feeling a little bit more rested. So not focusing on having the child sleep a certain way, but how are we all going to get more sleep? Being creative in how we use our time to go to sleep. A lot of us always stay up a little bit late because it's our own time, but is there another way that we could have our needs met for some alone time that doesn't mean staying up to 11 o'clock and then regretting our life's choices? (laughs) Using a regular wake up time, which isn't always someone's favorite thing to hear when the they're pretty tired. scariest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> As in for the, child. wait, waking the child or waking yourself? Both. Yeah. So just having Ooh. a regular wake up time is so helpful to set the circadian clock, to expose yourself to sunlight within the first hour or so, to eat at a certain time in the morning soon after. It feels a bit backwards, but it would actually help. Wow. Thinking about caffeine intake eating nourishing foods. Sounds so easy, doesn't it? But I lived on coffee and banana bread for the first three years, I think. (laughs) And using help where you can cutting corners, taking the path of least resistance, just leaning into it a little bit, I guess. And if co-sleeping really doesn't work for our family for whatever reason, you know, as you said, you're just someone who cannot sleep if there's a baby next to you, what are ways that we can you know, have our baby's needs met while them still being in a separate sleep space? 
Yeah, well, there are lots of ways that you can do it. And I guess that if if you are dealing with frequent night wakes, it can feel a little harder to be responding to all that and then having to resettle them, put them back in their cot and then hop into bed. If you have help, of course, enlist that help. Even if you are the breastfeeding partner, then having the other partner get the baby, bring the baby to you, put them on the boob and then take them back if they need to change them, settle them back to sleep, you know, working together in that way. If the baby is bottle fed, you can take shifts. It's sometimes if we're looking at reducing night wakes, it's a lot more than just how you're responding in the night. It's, you know, what we hear is, well, you need to teach the baby to self-settle once they can settle themselves and they won't wake as much and we have to break the feed to sleep association and all that sort of stuff. And it can help people not taking that away, but a lot of it is about, are we expecting them to sleep too much? Do they actually not need so much sleep? So their sleep pressure isn't high enough. Can we do a little bit of a later bedtime so that their first chunk of sleep syncs up with the parents' first chunk of sleep? Is it how we're spending our days? Are you getting out? Are you stressed about sleep? Is that having an impact? Like there's so much that goes on that contribute to how wakeful a child is wherever they sleep. See, I enjoyed having my kids go to bed at about six o'clock because I knew that I would still be awake to have my own time and fill up my cup. Mm -hmm. So they go down super early and then it was like the solid sleep for them, like four hours or three hours. And then I'd go to bed after they've woken up and have at least two or three in the early hours of a newborn. And I was fine with that though. And then if I was tired, then I would go to bed with them at six o'clock because I knew I was going to get a solid four hours. Yeah, Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So you found something that works for you. Yeah. Yeah. So is self-settling actually a taught skill or will all kids eventually learn how to do it? So yeah, all kids will eventually learn how to do it. It might just not be on our timelines. So you can absolutely teach a kid to self-settle if you want to, if you are keen to try that. For some babies, it will be a lot easier than others. So self-settling is essentially just putting themselves to sleep without your intervention, but they should be calm and happy while they do it. That's self-settling. And then there's also self-soothing, which is where we expect a child to soothe themselves. So to bring themselves down back to calm from a place of heightened stress. Self-soothing isn't really possible for an infant's brain. So we are their regulators as they are born. We are their external regulators. We regulate for them. As they get a little bit older, we co-regulate with them. And then as they get more, you know, older and developmentally ready, then we can start pulling back a little bit and helping them to manage some feelings on their own. And for them, we will still manage feelings with them. Gosh, it's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> it's such a lot. It so is many aspects of Because you're tired at the same bloody time. <laughs> so, no, you don't have to teach your kid to self-settle. You can absolutely do that and have a go. And if it works for them, it works for you. Some easygoing, settled babies will be happy to do it. Others, it will just be a shit show and just let it, let it go. Like it's okay to also just help your child off to sleep for as long as they need it. And then one day they will say that they don't need it anymore. When they're 18. When they're 18. (laughs) Yeah. No, I like this question. Tips for getting through sleep regressions. Do tell. Same as before, like in the same way that we sort of manage sleep deprivation and get creative about how we can support each other during wakeful periods. I think the the stress about sleep regressions is sometimes more than the actual stress of sleep regressions. 
I don't know if you noticed this when you had your babies, but the the rules suddenly change around four months. Like they say, cuddle your newborns, do everything, respond, and you know, do whatever works. And it's the fourth trimester, and they're on the outside, and blah blah blah. But actually, if you get to three and a half months, and they are not self settling and linking sleep cycles, and you fucked something up. <laughs> yeah. So I so true. It, it's and people come into motherhood with this like established fear of the four-month sleep regression and it just doesn't need to be like that. Things change and evolve and sleep is fluid and they're going to have times where they are more wakeful than other times and usually it is a sign of like explosive development happening and if we could focus on how exciting that is and noticing all these amazing changes in our kids at the same time as the wakefulness and go to bed a bit earlier and enlist the help and cut the corners taking the path of least resistance then we should be able to get through it a little bit easier but is because I've heard people say that the four-month sleep regression is like a permanent sleep regression and that the others are like temporary and so you can't just wait it out like you have to make some changes or you should make some changes what does all of that mean so the four-month sleep regression is that they are starting to sleep less like a newborn and more like a person so their sleep cycles change a little bit. They also have a pretty significant drop in sleep needs. So the research shows that the like three-month-olds, they sort of have a lot of sleep as newborns up to three months, and then they have about two hours less over a 24-hour period. So we're thinking that everything has gone to shit because they aren't sleeping as much as they were before. But actually, usually three months is the best time for sleep. That's when you get the longest chunks where sleep feels, you know, it's not going to be the same for everyone, but sleep feels relatively okay. You think you've got a good sleeper and then they enter <laughs> the four months and like, oh, suddenly they are, you know, taking short naps and it's harder to get them down. They get a little bit more distracted, but actually noticing that they probably don't need as much sleep as they did a few weeks ago would help mm. to manage the expectations. And so do you think looking at things like awake times and the times that they nap during the day are important or not important? Neither important or not important. Wake windows are helpful for lots of people. They are just also so variable. So right, okay. baby sleep needs are so variable. Like newborns can sleep for nine hours over a 24-hour period or 20 hours. That's what the research shows. So you can have really low sleep needs kids or really high sleep can no I put kids. in a request? Yeah, submit now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 20-hour baby. 20-hour, I don't want the 9-hour baby. No, you don't. But, but I, they're not a bad baby, I promise. They're not they're a not bad a baby, baby, but they are, yeah, particularly awake, aren't they? And the, the kind of the window between, like, invariability closes a little bit as they get older. So the most variability is in newborn sleep. But there is so much variability that, wake windows that you pull from Pinterest or, you know, they look different with every sleep consultant as well. It's not likely that they're going to be appropriate for your individual unique baby. The better way to do it is to slow down and watch them and experiment a bit of trial and error, see what works, and then take note of how long they are usually awake for before they are then asleep again. That's their wake windows. Clever. Yeah. Because uh, there's a lot of talk about once your baby appears tired, they're overtired. No. Is that oh, true? She's got no. no eyes. No, she just <laughs> cried her eyes out for 20 minutes. So she's just Because, <laughs> I mean, like if you're creating your own awake window, how do you know when you've, like, pushed it too far? Because you'll, you'll experiment and you'll see what lands. Yeah. So it's like bring it back to finding your own confidence in getting to know your baby and you kind of work it out together as a pair. You're not supposed to just 
know straight away. It takes a bit to get to know mm. each other and just a little bit of, yeah, flexible experimentation, seeing what lands, see what works for your baby and go that way. We had quite a few people write in saying that, you know, they feed their babies to sleep, but their baby's about to start daycare or about to be looked after by someone else. How can we deal with that transition? So like I was talking about with the night weaning stuff, layering on those sleep associations whilst you're feeding them to sleep so that somebody else can do the rubbing of the back, the patting of the bum, mm. certain songs, whatever, but also just trusting that even if it's a little bit clunky to start with, they will have their own relationship. Well they will have their own dance to dance. They will get to know each other and work out what soothes that child in that scenario and they'll work it out together, like just trusting that. As long as you have confidence in the caregiver, the caregiver has confidence in themselves, then they will just work it out. And I don't know if you guys have been through it starting childcare and seeing that well, they just... Uh- do things yeah, differently. I mean, I think that once my kids started childcare, they weren't feeding to sleep, but they also had other sleep associations that were probably just as strong as if they had been getting fed to sleep. And like, if we forgot their comforter, the childcare educator was like, "Yeah, that's fine. They'll just go to sleep." They got daycare, yeah. or like, you they know, they were sleeping the on a stretcher. Room. I'm all like, if I them. put a stretcher down at home, they would look at me, laugh, get up, and go back to whatever they were playing before. 100%. Like, yeah. they have their magic, and yeah, as you say, they're in a room of all these other kids. Like even when my kids were on a bottle, oh, it doesn't matter that you forgot the bottle, they'll be fine. And mm. they were. And then they go, lie down and they sleep for like three hours. And yeah. you're like, I get 45 minutes at home. What are you talking about? Exactly. So it will just always look different. It'll always work out. Even if it's a bit clunky to start with, they'll find their way. And do you have similar recommendations? Because there was a lot of women who said, you know, they're very happy with feeding to sleep, but they also just want the freedom to know that, they can go out for dinner at night or, you know, have a night away maybe somewhere in the distant future. Would it be a similar recommendation that you use other sleep associations so a partner or someone else can get them to sleep? Yes. And also just if that parent really, really, really wants to go to this dinner and really wants this few hours away and they have somebody who they trust to look after the baby and respond to their needs, then just do the damn thing. It's a few hours. As long as you know that that baby is safe and being responded to and nurtured, then it's okay for the baby to be a bit sad and somebody to be there and say, I know you miss mum, she'll be home soon. The only thing is though, where it's a fine line with guilt if you're handing a loved one a child when you know that they may, you know, wake up and cry because mum's not there. How do you know when it's the right time to go, I'm going to leave my kid and I'm going to leave my guilt at the door, go have a good time versus I'm going to leave my child with a loved one. But I'm not going to enjoy myself anyway. I'm not going to enjoy myself or that poor person is going to cop a crying baby for the whole night. Again, it's kind of trying to work out your why, hey, like if you really, really need this and you, Mm. who you are leaving them with, you know that they know that that's what it might look like and you have your rules set out. Like if they have been crying for 45 minutes Mm. and you cannot settle them, please let me know and trust that, you know, I do not want you to not let me know that it will just upset me. So having a bit of a backup plan. But if you feel like you are feeling pressured to go and do something and you think you should because other people are able to leave their babies, but you actually don't even really 
care and you're happy being where you are, then that's okay too. That like that's the so time true. will come. And I remember saying when I had Knox, he was definitely one of those babies who just needed a lot and was not comfortable with other people and all the things. And I said to someone like, what do you do when you go out for dinner or something? Like if they are just on the boob all the time. And she said, maybe it's just not your time. And maybe it's time will come later and that's all I needed but if I was someone who just needed someone to say just go and do it and be okay with it then that would have felt just as powerful if that's where I was at you know what I mean but that's what I needed at the time was just permission to you don't have to bounce back and if you go and you have a app wi-fi monitor (laughs) delete it (laughs) off your phone (laughs) oh god I never had that but that would be awful (laughs) I've actually been really good like when I go out that I'm like I've enlisted someone that I trust. So that's all fine. But this baby is the first time that I'm using one of those monitors. And I'm like, how strong are my boundaries actually? Yeah. If the option is there. It's going to be interesting. Yet to be seen. Yeah. I'm I'm interested to hear about that. Like this is another thing though, hey, like with all the technology and all the things that we get for our babies just complicates it sometimes and takes away our confidence. Oh, we've taken down our monitors both times because the other times we've lived in very small houses. This is the first time we've lived in a house that would like warrant having a monitor because you can't just hear them through the next wall. Yeah. And um, I have actually found in the past that monitors have stressed us out so much because yeah. half the time it was beeping and vibrating because it was like less than 16 degrees and the baby was sound asleep. And I was like, why are you waking me up? They're happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not like icicles are on the window. Like we're okay. We're in, we're in northern <laughs> New are, South Wales. Yeah, I don't think she's freezing. We're in northern New South Wales. It's another thing to kind of get addicted to as well. Like yeah. addicted to the Wonder Weeks app and addicted to things that give us give us this sense of knowing what's happening when we don't. I was going to say that earlier when you were talking about almost the the fear of the regression can be worse than the regression itself. I had to delete the Wonder Weeks app because you look at the next month and the whole thing storms. I'm like, when am I going to, this baby's just a storm all the time. And I feel like my baby would cry for a very normal reason. And I'd be like, it's the storm starting. And then it'd be like, no, like your baby is going to have periods throughout the day that it cries without it being a storm. So I was like, it just has to go. Yeah. It's the meanings we attach to it, hey. And I also thought that when the Wonder Weeks app stopped, everything was sunshine. (laughs) Like I think it goes to about 18 months and I was like, hooray, I made it. I gra- I graduated the app. I graduated I the app. There were no there were no more developmental periods. Can <laughs> confirm there are storms forever. No, it, that's why they did stop. They went fuck it. We've blown it. It is a shitstorm yeah. from now on. So we'll just <laughs> yeah, close <probably>. it. <laughs> Shut it down. Now, how can we keep them in their cot without leaving them to cry? That's so individual and unique to every baby and every situation, but basically it would be just about putting them back in their cot and picking them up when you need to and then putting them back in their cot. And it might take a little bit more responding to than it would if you had them alongside you, but it would just be about making the cot a really, really nice place to be. And if they are happy to be settled in their cot, then you can do that as well, like patting their bum, rubbing their back, experiment with that. Yeah, it it would look so different for everyone. And is that similar to if you or or you felt like your baby was ready to transition to their own sleep space? Is that similar 
a similar approach you take? Yeah. So I would always start by making the cot or the sleep space, whatever that looks like, a a nice place to be where you have lots of connection times in there and lots of cuddles and giggles. And, you know, there's a, a, a message that you have to make cot only for sleep. I think it can be a little bit more flexible than that. If they're a little bit older, you might go with them while you're transitioning them to their own space. So you might have a mattress on the floor or you might have their, if you're transitioning them from your bed to a toddler bed, for example, you might have that in your bedroom for a little while and then move them into their bedroom. You just have to kind of work backwards sometimes to think about how uh, you can take it step by step, whereas you will always have other kids who are very confident and settled, easygoing, and you can just plonk them in there and see how it goes and yeah how do we co-sleep safely with a baby who is now on the move so the the mattress should still be on the floor so that cuts out the falling off the bed thing but otherwise you just want to baby proof the room like if you're all in there together you might shut the door and make it so that they can't open the door before they wake you up that's like a pretty unique situation that they go and get wheat fix and milk before the parents wake up <laughs> I mean, if you really trained them up properly, it could actually be an absolute win as long as they didn't turn on the oven or anything else. Absolutely. Like put in, put in your orders. I had a funny story about the mattress on the ground when you're transitioning them to their own space. Nick and I got to the point that You know, I I feel like with Poppy's age, I've become more and more understanding of her wanting to sleep with us because I am such a scaredy cat at night. And when I was younger, I was really scared of going to bed by myself. Even now, if Nick's away, like every noise is a murderer. Like I just, (laughs) potentially the boogeyman is still under my bed. And so I said, okay, well, we're clearly not getting her out of our room anytime soon. Like let's offer to put a stretcher or a mattress on the ground and maybe she'll feel safe with that. And she said she was, you know, willing to give it a go. And we accidentally ordered a custom bed base that was super king, but we only had a king mattress. And so the the base came and we put the mattress on it and there's this massive gap down the side, obviously, because the mattress isn't big enough for the base. And the day that our super king mattress arrived, Poppy got home from daycare and saw it leaning up against the wall and goes, oh, mummy, is that my new mattress for the floor? <laughs> Law. <laughs> and I was like, you have got to be kidding me, yes, princess. <laughs> I said, the most you'll be getting is some uncomfortable camping stretcher. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll be on our floor till you're 35. Well, they, they love the dog beds at kindy, don't they? Yeah, with yeah, with their partner, three <laughs> kids, the dog and the goldfish. <laughs> anyway. Oh, I love it. Before we leave you, is there any other words of wisdom or of or advice you'd like to give to any of our listeners who are, you know, having trouble with sleep or are pregnant themselves and about to kind of embark on this world where everyone has something to say about the way their child sleeps? <laughs> yes, I have lots of words, so I'll try to rein it in. But I think just taking the pressure off ourselves to get it right and starting to poke holes in the marketing that we are exposed to, starting to unfollow things that don't feel good to us, like really recognizing what feels right to us and what doesn't and pushing back against or just cutting it out, what doesn't feel right. So we all do it differently. There is so much value in just experimenting and using trial and error and getting to know your individual unique baby and seeing what works for your individual unique family. 
And when all else fails, just bring it back to connection because usually connection is the number one thing that our kids are looking for. So if we can bring it back to the relationship and experiment with that at the forefront, then we should be okay. Yeah. Beautiful. And we like to say all the time on the podcast, if it's not broken, don't try and fix it. Mm. Everyone out there is doing their own thing, no matter how you look at sleep. Can we stop shaming those that sleep train? Can we stop shaming those that co-sleep? And can we stop shaming the many, many people that are somewhere in between on that spectrum? So Mm. I know you had a chat with Dr. Sophie Brock the other week, didn't you? Yes. How how we all are sort of pitting ourselves against one another to, to keep us you know, in this perfect mum myth, there is so much power in getting to understand all of that sort of stuff too, so that we can pull back some of our power and push back against stuff that is kind of keeping us in this guilt and shame spiral. Mm, Absolutely. Thank you so, so much for joining us and for the amazing work you do. For those who don't follow Fiona, you can find her at mamamatters.au on Instagram and we will link that blog post, your own podcast and your page in our show notes as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.